Hi. Um, if you don't know me, I'm the clumsy one. I'm Anya. Um, welcome this morning. Um, I'm part of the leadership team here, and I've got the honour of um, talking about um, the Bride of Christ, talking about the church's identity um, as the Bride of Christ. And we've been following through um, over the whole year. The, the context this sits in is we've been looking at a year of biblical literacy, so trying to not just leave our Bibles as something to gather dust or um, you know, picking up every now and then, but to really understand what the, the Word says about who God is, about who we are in Him, um, and some of the biblical history as well. So we've been unpacking that throughout 2018. Um, and the last few weeks, we've been looking at um, a, a series called On This Rock, um, which is about... Um, you know, the rock being Simon, who was then called Peter, um, who, which means the rock, and Jesus saying um, he was going to use um, Peter to be really instrumental in building the church. And he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Um, so we've been looking at what the Bible says about the church, what our identity is, um, and why, why we'd bother sort of being involved in this institution, why we turn up on a Sunday, um, why we outwork uh, the church, and how, what that looks like in our, in our daily lives, um, and why we would sort of associate ourselves with this. Um, what did Jesus intend for his church? Um, why did he call us to collectively join together uh, rather than just being individual worshippers or individual doers of the word? Um, and we've, got, we've looked at some different themes, um, some powerful descriptions through uh, the New Testament. And we've seen that the church is described as the body um, of Christ. And then Steve talked about the family. Um, and this week we're looking at the bride. So we're going to sort of think about how um, God, why God puts together and how we use our, our gifts and our abilities and also looking at that God has called us out for a reason. He's destined us to be together and to serve and to worship him together. So through the Old and the New Testament, we see this phrase, the bride of Christ. Um, and it's the idea that Jesus is a faithful husband, the head of our household, and the church is his bride. In Isaiah 54, 5, it says, Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. And then in Ephesians 5, 23, in the New Testament, it says, A husband is the head of his wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the saviour of the church, which is his body. And we see multiple references through the Bible um, of the bride of Christ, right through to Revelation, where the church is described as the bride of the lamb, with the lamb being Jesus. And firstly, I want to acknowledge that, you know, a bit like Steve did a couple of weeks ago when he talked about the family, um, that not all of our experiences of family or of um, the bride might be positive. You might have um, in your own history or those around you, maybe even your parents, marriages that aren't strong, where husbands aren't faithful and where brides aren't honourable. Um, or maybe you've longed to be a bride and just feel that you never will be. And so this idea of being called the bride of Christ just doesn't quite sit right. It's a bit painful and a bit uncomfortable. Or maybe you're a man and you think... It's a bit odd to be called a bride because, you know, I don't really go around wearing white dresses and covering my head in lace. Um, it's not really my, my image. Why would God use the word bride, which is sort of associated just with, um, just with women? And actually, if you go back in history, women weren't particularly significant or important. So why would he use a gender-associated um, description for his church? Um, it just, you know, might seem a bit strange. 
But we need to see this is more than just a metaphor or a parable. This isn't just, um, you know, Jesus saying, you're like a bride. This is our identity. We are the bride of Christ. It's our narrative, and it's who he says we are as the church. And let's also put aside some of our imaginings of bride and grooms, you know, with the, with the long white dresses um, and the 21st sort of century weddings and what we've made them to be. And I think it's quite helpful to look back in history and to see in, when this was mentioned and, and described in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, is within the Jewish traditions of marriage. Um, and I think that's going to be really unhelpful to unpack some of the idea of why we're called the Bride of Christ. And actually, it's not gender descriptive, um, and it's not about just waiting for, um, for your own wedding day. So going back to some of these traditions... I'm going to talk you through them, and then we're going to unpack them a bit. So first of all, in the first stage of of a marriage, of a coupling, um, in a Jewish tradition, would be the shidukin. Um, And this is the husband, sorry, the father um, choosing the bride for his son. So he loves his son, he thinks his son's brilliant, and he wants to choose the best wife for his son. Um, In Genesis 24, it describes how Abraham tried to select the best wife for his beloved son Isaac. Um, So this is a father looking at all of the things and saying, I want the best for my best. And then the next stage, once he's chosen, once he's picked out the very best bride, um, there's the ketchubah, which is the contract where the groom promises to love and support his wife. So he then enters into a contract or a covenant with the wife and says, we're going to be joined together um, and we're going to make, you know, we're going to stick with this and this is now bound. We're now bound together. Um, and then they agree a price that they're willing to pay. Now, again, this might seem a bit uncomfortable in our society of, of a woman being bought, um, but actually it's saying, um, I recognise that this woman has value and um, that I'm going to say, this is how much I value her. I'm going to give all that I've got, um, whether it be material gifts or acts of service or a sacrifice or a mixture of these things. Um, and, you know, so it might have been saying, I, I will give this many camels or you know five donkeys I'm definitely worth six so um, you know there was a good price paid for me Um, but they they agree this is the price I'm willing to pay and then she becomes contracted and bought into this marriage Um, and then there's a celebration so you know this is a good thing this isn't where she's taken away from her family this is a celebration the erosin And it begins, it's a bit like an engagement party. So this is a celebration to say, these two people are going to be together. Um, They're promised to each other. They're going to be faithful. um, And they're no longer free to look elsewhere. You know, we're we're in this. Um, And then some time passes. So maybe a year or maybe maybe more. And they live separately. And she's waiting and she's anticipant of of when the groom's going to come. And it's an unknown time. It says, um, you know, that... In the same way, we don't know when Jesus is going to come back again. This is an unknown time. So they're in, they're in this um, promise to each other, but then he will come for her. And so it's real excitement and preparation. And the bride prepares to be with her husband. Um, but she's got to live differently. She's got to step up to the fact that she's now a bride-to-be. Um, and she's got a new identity, and she can't behave in the way that a single woman would. I want to sing all the single ladies there. Um, before he did put a ring on it... Um, <laughs> Before the wedding procession, um, they are then 
there's then a ritual cleansing. Okay, so there's an immersion where she gets completely cleansed um, and has like fragrant baths, and um, all of her women friends flock. This sounds great. I think we should definitely bring this back into British weddings. Um, basically, going to a spa. That's what it is. Um, but she's soaking in long, deep baths and dressed in finery before she's ready to be presented to her groom. So he's come back. She knows it's going to happen. She has this ritual immersion, um, the mikvah, that's called. And then lastly, there's the nishwan, which is the wedding party. So this is what we know as a wedding, um, you know, with a big meal and celebration and dancing and, um, and all of that. Um, and then they're fully united. This is when the bride and the groom become one. And if you're... So I'm just going to skip back to Hosea, which is um, a book at the, old, at the end of the Old Testament. Um, he was a prophet in Israel in 750 B.C., um, and Hosea basically had this calling upon his life to live in a way that was going to mirror what God was saying to the Israelites. Um, I actually think he got a little bit of a dud deal, um, but you know he stuck with it. He was, he was great. So um, God teaches us through um, Hosea's life of how he loves the church. So the book begins, <clears throat> you might be familiar with this, um, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go and marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So not only has he got to present this to the Israelites, he's also got to live it. Um, tough gig. So he married Goma, daughter of Diblium, and, con- and she conceived and bore him a son. And it goes on to tell us about the children they had with really bad names. Now, I don't recommend, if you are expecting or going to have kids in the future, that you name the kids after these. So one of them was called Not Loved. Um, one was called Not My People. Um, and they went on to having really awful um, names. So this is um, it was telling the story of how um, the people just went away from God and how he continued to love them. Anyway, so he, God tells of his desire for Israel and the people in his church. But Goma is, is unfaithful. She's distracted, she's apathetic, and um, we see how Hosea fights for her. So she returns to her life of prostitution, and God instructs Hosea to go and buy her back. So not only is it bad enough that he says you have to go and marry a promiscuous woman, he's been a faithful man of God, and he has to go and um, be joined with somebody who's not got a good reputation and has got all this history. Um, but then he has to accept her and forgive her and make a life with her. And then she goes and does it again, and he's got to go and buy her back. So he has to pay twice um, to be with this woman. And so I sort of think this is a, starts, the story starts off a bit like a fairy tale. Maybe it's Cinderella, you know, a young peasant girl um, who's um, picked out and chosen and made to look beautiful and joined with this prince, and, you know, they live happily and ever, ever after. Um, we, but, it's, you know, it doesn't really end like that. We see... In these stories, sort of maybe a hint of, of a trouble, maybe like Pretty Woman, if you've ever seen that film, classic film, um, where she's sort of, you know, you see a hint of, of what her past was, and then she turns her life around because Richard Gere comes in. If you haven't seen the film, if you're too young, I'm looking at these guys over here, you've got to see it. Um, but I'm not sure you're allowed to preach about Pretty Woman, are you? Um, okay, I'll move on. But you see, you know, Actually, then, in that story, her life is completely turned around and, you know, she's got all this gratitude because her life is, is um, made good. But this is not what we see with Goma. She's a mess. Um, she's still doing drugs. She's still selling her body. She leaves her kids and disappears. She neglects them in the biggest way possible. Um, she's not a good wife, despite, Go- um, despite Hosea being a good husband. But what we see is that Hosea chose her and he knows what he knew what he was getting into. And then he goes and brings her back. He knows where she's gone, and he goes and pays again. 
Um, and this is our story. This is God's relationship with us, the church. So the Shidukin, God chooses us. So I'm going to read from Hosea 2, which just says, um, not 2.19, God's promised his people, I will make you my wife forever, showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. I'll be faithful to you and make you mine, and you will finally know me as Lord. This is a God who pursues and loves his church, despite her failings. And we don't have to go far back in history to see the spectacular failings of the church, you know, like the Crusades. But actually, we even need to go even far less back to see our own failings individually or, you know, collectively as a church, where we've been distracted, where we've got our eyes in the wrong places, where we've been an unfaithful bride. So why would God pick us? Why would God choose the church to be his bride? Maybe he just chooses the good churches, you know, the ones that get everything right. Maybe he chose the vineyard when we had that really good stage of having lots of worship albums published and, um, you know, maybe, maybe we've had our season. But actually, this is bigger than just our church. It's bigger than Central Vineyard. It's bigger than um, the Vineyard Network. It's bigger than um, the church in the UK. This is the church that has stood the test of time, a generation and centuries and centuries. This is the church that's globally... So when I talk about the church, I want you to think not just of yourself or us sitting in this room, um, but this is the church with a capital uh, the at the beginning. Um, and the Bible is really clear um, about, you know, that, that God has chosen the church. It's his choice. He's not stuck with us. He's not disappointed. He's not like, oh, I just wish I hadn't made that choice. You know, he's not ashamed or embarrassed that he got landed with the church. He intended and planned for us to be in relationship with him. He knows our faults and he knows our future and he knows our past. He knew all the messy stuff that was going to happen with the church. He knew how we were going to get things wrong and not really be on track. And when we get things right and are right on track, he knows that. And he knew that we would never give back as much as he would give to us. But just the same as the Jewish traditions where the father chooses the best for his son we can see that God has chosen the best for his son, Jesus. He sees us as the best. And, you know, there's no doubt about it. We married up. You, do you say that phrase? Where you see a couple and you're like, gosh, he's really married up. Actually, you probably say it the other way around more often. Um, he's really married up. You know, when you see them a bit uneven matched, and maybe you think, oh, is she just settling for him? Maybe, maybe you're just not as horrible as um, me. Um, <laughs> awkward. Okay, but, but you might just think, wow. She's phenomenal. How did she end up punching above their weight? There we go. There we go. Got some good gestures there. Um, people say that about me and Pete all the time. I'll let you work out who's punching above their weight. Um, no, we are, God is saying, we, it, we are not punching above our weight. We are a good choice in his eyes. Um, so the bridegroom goes after his bride. He chooses her and then she messes up and he brings her back. In Hosea 2, it says further on, God God says he will allure his bride. He will sort of bring her in. He will speak tenderly to her, asking her to lay down her other gods, the stuff that distracts us, the stuff that we get our focus on. He asks us, will you lay it down? I'm going to woo you and bring you in. She will call him husband rather than master. This isn't a relationship where it's uneven, where you've got the, you know, the master set and the, and the servant wife down at, at his feet. This is an, an equal relationship. He will promise her safety righteousness, justice, love, compassion, and faithfulness. And he, our God, will, our bridegroom, will show love to us, even when we act like we aren't his people, 
even when we turn our heads, and, and then we will look to him and say, you are my God. He's committed to us. He wants to make a covenant with us. He knows what he's getting into. He knows what he's calling us out of. The bridegroom commits to his bride, the Ketchubah. God makes a covenant with us. He enters into covenant. He makes a vow. So, you know, it says in Ezekiel, I made a vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. This is what God says about his church. He has made a promise to us. He sought us out. He's chosen us. And then he makes a covenant. And when we started the year of biblical literacy, um, we talked about how um, at the beginning of the story of God, God made a covenant with his people. And a covenant is a, an agreement. If you do this, I will do that. Um, and God says, you know, I will be faithful to you and you will commit yourself to me. And actually, we got it wrong. You know, through generation after generation, we continued to get it wrong. And it wasn't until Jesus came and redeemed us and enabled us to make, make our part right, not through our own strength. And what we see here is God, God makes a covenant with the church. He's always faithful. He's far more than we deserve. We don't, you know, we don't live up to our end of the bargain, but he has chosen us, redeemed us, and continues to choose and redeem us, both collectively and individually. But to become joined, to become betrothed, to have the wife be joined with the groom, he has to pay a price. And the better the bride, the better the price. And we know that God gave everything. He gave his only son. So he's paid the, the highest price that he could have done. So he must think that the bride is worth it. And he sacrificed what he couldn't even ask anybody else to sacrifice. So if we remember back in the Old Testament, we've got Abraham who was um, called to sacrifice his son Isaac. But then right at the last minute, God says, it's okay. You know, get, get him back off, off that rock. You're not going to have to sacrifice him. But God went through with it with Jesus. He paid the highest bridal price for the church to be united with him. He didn't put a conditional offer in place. You know, the groom knew that we were broken goods. Whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't like, I'm going to die for you only if you do this, this, and this. He knew we would be unfaithful and distracted, but he gave everything. He risked it all. And when you love somebody, you're all in. God of the universe makes himself look like a cheated-on chump. He pursues us, and he loves us, and he's all in. He says, I'm committed. You know, he looks, makes himself look foolish, really. Because he's just been forgotten and cheated on by the church. And he, comes and, and he brings us back time after time, dragging us out of the dirt, paying for us again and again because he loves us. He's pledged himself to us. He's made a covenant with us. And if we flick forward to the, the New Testament, so we, we can see this in Hosea's life with Gomer. Um, but Jesus tells the parables of the lost son, the lost uh, sheep, the lost coin. And we see how... Jesus is telling us we are worth pursuing. God wants to come after us. He would leave everything to fetch us back. He sacrifices everything we have. He has, sorry. And, you know, not only through the parables, but then we see it with Jesus. He breaks any hold that Satan gets to have on us by saying, I love you with everything. I want, it to, I want you and I to be together and I would give it all. Um, when Pete and I were dating and started to think about getting married. Um, my dad, who, if anyone's met my dad, he can be quite intense, um, also then not so much. Uh, but this was an intense moment. And he asked Pete, would you die for her? Um, now, 
imagine being asked that as a potential son-in-law, um, probably a bit scary. Um, and Pete said, would you, back to my dad, and he said, well, it's okay, I don't need to if you're going to. Um, so I think he was, you know, thinking this is a win-win situation. Um, but I remember from quite an early age, my dad saying, you need to find somebody um, who will be willing to die for you. That's what a good marriage is. Um, that's, you know, the love that actually the father feels for his child, that fierce love where if you saw something going to happen, you would throw yourself in front of that bus to protect your child. That's the same love that you need in a marriage to be able to fight for them and to love them. And this is the sort of love that we see in God. He would sacrifice his only son. He would lay a life down for us. Um, so once the covenant has been made and the price has been paid, the, the bride enters into a period of waiting. This is the erison where where God waits for us and we wait for him. She knows her groom's going to return uh, and her status has changed. She's significant and been picked out, but she's waiting. She approaches the time of being fully united. And we call this in the vineyard the time of the, the now and the not yet. This is where we live, you know. We've got, we see in the Bible how um, Jesus laid down his life for us and we were purchased and we were paid for and, and loved and, and invited into this relationship. But we don't get to be fully with God yet. We're not quite at that end celebration. So we sometimes see, you know, heaven touching earth and miracles happen and this amazing Holy Spirit. But also... We sometimes don't see those things. We're not quite completely with him. It says in Revelation, believers in Jesus Christ are the bride of Christ, and we wait with great anticipation for the day we'll be united with our bridegroom. Until then, we'll remain faithful to him and, and say with all of the redeemed of the Lord, come Lord Jesus. And that is what we're asked to do in this time of waiting. We're asked to say, come Lord Jesus, come and be with us in this time even though we're not quite fully united. We're anticipating that. We're called into a relationship and to change our identity and to be with him. We've got the freedom to act in the kingdom of heaven, but we're still waiting. God promised us in the Old Testament, you know, this is going back thousands and thousands of years, um, that he is our bridegroom, and generation after generation is waiting for the revelation of the bride to fully approach the husband. We're here as the church, the bride, in the period of betrothal, like engagement, of waiting and anticipation. And I remember um, that time of waiting for, for being married to Pete. Um, so we're now, at, I, we've um, been together as many years as we've been on our own. So we got together when I was 18, and now we've been together 18 years. Um, but we've only been married 11 years. So we spent seven years dating and then engaged and waiting, because we were obviously quite young when we got together, um, waiting to tie the knot. And I was all for marriage, you know. I was, I was excited about this going to happen. Um, I had the scrapbooks, I had the magazines. Um, I did state in the first sermon, I didn't have those on our first date. I wasn't one of those scary girls that turned up with the wedding magazine um, and said, I'm all in. Um, but, but as the time drew closer, you know, as we got... We, this was clear we were going to be together... I was so excited to be the bride. I was going to buy into this fully. I wanted to be able to, um, you know, go to work separately and come home at the end of the day and cook dinner together and share the little pot where you keep your toothbrushes, which is not all it's cracked up to be. Um, horrible little pot. Um, so, um, you know, 
you're excited when you're waiting to do that and when you know that it's coming. It's a different kind of excitement to maybe if you're single and waiting and then you're like, it could happen, but you know, we have down days too. This is something that's promised. We, we are promised as the bride of Christ. This is not something that might or might not happen. Um, this, is, this is on the table. It's real. Um, but do we, how do we behave then in that waiting are we excited? Are we anticipant? Are we expectant of this happening? You know, or are we just one of those couples that's engaged to be just engaged, not engaged to be married? I'm sure we all know people who get engaged and that engagement just stretches on and on and on and they buy a house and they have kids and they get a dog, but they're just engaged because the marriage never comes. And it's just comfortable because they've got everything by then. I hope I've not offended anybody in this room. Um, but we are not just engaged, we're not, we're not just betrothed, we're, we are betrothed to be the bride, to live into this, to go into this marriage. And so we, we aren't called to just sit comfortably and be the church that is just going to be comfortable because God's there and we will be with him at some point. Um, we have this prom- promise in Revelation, let's rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and the bride has made ready herself. This is something that is happening. And in our culture, a lot of the fuss and preparation surrounds the bride. But as the, as, the wedding, as the waiting draws to the end, as we approach the wedding, we see the bridegroom is also preparing. Um, and he's eager to be united with his bride. And if you go to a wedding, you know, when the bride's about to walk down the aisle and she's got all the long dress and the little flower girls scattering the petals, if you turn and look at the, the groom, um, he is excited. He is looking. He's waiting. He's watching. Um, maybe his eyes are tearing up a bit, um, trying to hold it back and hold it all together. Maybe he's just in floods of tears. We went to a wedding recently, and uh, the groom sang his wife down the aisle, which was very dramatic and um, romantic. Um, but it says in Isaiah 64, the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, and so shall your God rejoice over you. This is our promise as the church. God is excited for us. He is waiting for us. He is looking for us. He is searching for us. He's waiting until we come around that corner to walk towards him. But he's the one that takes the risk. He's the one that's put himself out there. And traditionally, you know, the, the husband, the, the groom will propose um, to the wife. And you see in the, in the tradition of this where the, um, the groom's family is picking up the bride, they're putting themselves out there. Um, And we've seen those films, I'm sure, where the bride never actually makes it to the altar, where the runaway bride and things like that. Um, I've got a friend from, um, family friend from a long way back and went to her wedding um, and she's traditionally quite late for things. Well, so the time came and went of when she was supposed to be coming to the wedding um, and they got the you know, the, the music ready for her to come down the aisle as, as the doors, oh no, that wasn't her so they waited a bit longer and then they killed the music and everybody started chatting and then it went, came up again, no, and then killed the music 45 minutes later the bride walks through the door um, it was agonising for everybody other than the groom and he said um, out, out loud, he said um, I'm the luckiest guy alive he, was, he waited, he risked he anticipated and he won He rejoiced over his bride. He didn't chastise her or humiliate her. He embraced her and delighted in her. And this is God's love for us. Um, His bride, you know, our our longing to be connected to God. But we we take our time often. And often we're so frustratingly late to that invitation. And yet he still just welcomes us with open arms. 
And I have to tell you, sometimes the way the church, and again, I'm using this collectively, the church behaves, I can't imagine why the prince, the perfect one, would want us to be his bride. And we're far from perfect. We don't match up. We're messy and whiny and apathetic. And we rarely, if ever, give up, live up to our God-given potential. There are times when our faithfulness probably wears pretty thin. Our eyes wander. We get distracted. There's things that seem more important. This is just a season in our life where we have to get this, this, and this done. And the church is not the most important thing. Sometimes our hearts get sidetracked and we let things like material possessions, power, prestige, other things become more important in our lives than the bridegroom who loves us more than life itself. And I can't even begin to fathom his never-ending love for us. But God cleanses us. This is the mikvah. We see an outstanding bridegroom that when the bride can't step up to the mark, he reaches down and he lifts her up. It says that he's, he's lifted us up out of the miry clay, out of the real dirt. He gave himself up for us first before we turn to him. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wife, just wives just as Christ loved the church. And this is talking about Christ's love now. It says, He gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing her with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. He cleans us. He makes us holy. So hang on a minute. We know that God's holy and we know that he invites us into relationship with us. But do we know that that makes us holy? He washes us. He gets rid of all the crud and the mess, and makes us a pure, spotless bride. He doesn't just have to kind of turn his eyes away because we've come in with our hair all dishevelled and a dress that's got all stains on. He sees us as that pure, spotless bride. That is our identity. I mean, it's phenomenal. We get to wear white even though we've messed up. He pursues us, he desires us, and he anticipates us. He wants us to come and be his bride. And what God is talking about here is the most intimate relationship. And I think that's one of the reasons why we see this, um, the description of the church being the bride of Christ. It's the most intimate relationship. God uses it because he wants us to recognize how deeply he loves us. He wants to relate to us. It's not a one-night stand, you know. This is God who is in it, and he wants us to be in it with him. It's a lifetime of growing closer to him. Christ has fallen head over heels in love with us. When Jesus says that our, that our love is to die for, he meant it literally. It's a love that led Jesus to spread out his hands and allow nails to be driven through his wrists and feet, the crown of thorns to be wedged on his head. And as each breath became shallower as he hung on the cross, the Son of God could have ended the drama. He could have said, that's enough. This wedding is not worth it. I don't want the unfaithful bride. In Isaiah 64, it says... All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. If it all depended on us, there would be no wedding. But Jesus couldn't bear to spend eternity without us. He longs to live out eternity with his betrothed. So with his blood, he purchased a garment of righteousness worthy of a royal wedding. Isaiah 61 says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me in garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. And so the bride is united with her bridegroom. 
When we get our act together, we get to be with Christ. He has pursued us. He has invited us. He has paid for us. He has made a faithful promise to us. And we are not alone. This is the Nishuin, God with us. We have the bridegroom, Christ by our side, being our head, being our lead, bringing us into unity with him. We belong to him. Now, being the bride of Christ sounds impossible. I mean, that's a big calling. I'm not sure I can fill boots that big. But we're not in it alone. We, it's a union. It's a partnership. He is our bridegroom. And marriage is hard. I'm not going to lie to you. Most relationships start off great. You know, when your boyfriend or girlfriend walks in the room and your heart pounds and you, think, and you look at them and you think, oh, they're so amazing. And then after years of marriage... Your husband or wife walks in the room and your heart pounds and you think, oh, they're so annoying. You know, marriage can be tricky. The things that make you tick at the start might might tick you off. We know that 42% of marriages end in divorce. And we know that brides and the bridegroom don't stay in that loved up time of honeymoon bliss. There are many times when love isn't oozing out of every pore. When you have to just pitch in and graft to make it strong. And when Pete and I fall out, which I know, shock horror, could never happen. um, But, you know, when we want to rage war against each other, when the things that really annoy us rise up to the surface, the thing that calms us down is one of us will have to say, I'm on your team, you know, let's not fight against each other. We're in this together. I'm on the same side as you. And often it takes moments like that just to, you know, dissolve those things. Because... This is what God says to us. He is on our team. He is fighting our corner. We're not, we don't need to be at heads with him. We don't need to ignore him. We don't need to work at this relationship all, all on our own. He is on our side and he fights for us. So we don't need to fight against him. But you have to be in it together to make it work. It takes both the husband and the wife, the bride and the bridegroom. And here's where we need to remember the church is only half of the relationship. God is already in it with us. He is grafting, he is pitching in, he is forever faithful. And so in the Jewish ceremony, when the bride and the groom become one, they break a glass and everyone shouts, Mosseltov! Come on, guys, this is a celebration. The anticipation has ended, the time has come, they have been made one. You know, in, in a British wedding, you, it's the same moment as where the, the bride and groom kiss and, you know, maybe everybody gives a bit of a whoop and, a, and an applause. This is excitement. We are together. And we must not overlook the honour and excitement the celebration is to be the bride of Christ. It's a big deal. In no other religion would the followers be audacious enough to call their God their equal, to be joined in the most intimate relationship. But that's because this isn't just a religion where God's a far-off thing. This is a relationship. The bride has a new name, a new identity, an authority in her husband. And have you ever seen those signs? Maybe some beautiful, loved-up couples in this room might have used these signs at their wedding, so I don't want to offend. Um, but I've seen a, these signs for, uh, that people hold up in, in uh, wedding photos that say, he stole her heart, so she stole his last name. You ever seen those? Cheesy, right? But what if that was true? What if God really did steal our hearts? What if we at the church behaved like he had our hearts? That he'd wooed us and knocked us off our feet and we couldn't think of anything but him. Surely that would be the greatest cause for celebration. We would never stop praising him. 
we would just want to tell everybody about him. We'd be enraptured by him. We'd be desperate to sit at his feet. We'd rush through all of the mundane tasks of the day just to be together. And what if we behaved like we had his last name? There are people who would give everything to marry into the royal family, you know, to be a Windsor. That would be the greatest thing. There's quite a few people, I'm sure, who would like to marry into the Willis family um, and to have the Willis last name, but unfortunately, Pete's taken. Um, But I love it when uh, Pete's dad comes from a big family um, and there's, you know, all the aunties are really tight. Um, And I love it if they call me a Willis girl um, because, you know, that means I've become part of their identity, part of something bigger than myself. And that is what God says to us. We get to have his last name. Last week, um, if you were with us, Andrew talked about um, our identity and how we're called to be saints, not sinners. You know, that we actually get to have a new, a new name, a new identity. And it's not that we're just sinners that have turned into saints. We just get to be called saints. Um, and so he got us to turn to each other, if you're with us, and we had to introduce ourselves. So I was Saint Anya. Um, but, you know, this is one step further. This is, what, this is the identity of the church, that we get to put Christ on the end of our name. So I'd like to introduce myself as Saint Anya Christ. Um, and just, but, you know, this is, I'm, I'm kind of joking, but also kind of not. We are central vineyard of Christ. We get to have his last name as part of our identity. This, this is important because when we step up to that identity, we then step up to that authority. If we are a Christ, we get to do all the cool stuff that a Christ gets to do. If we carry his last name, then the old bit of our life has gone and we can live in the fullness of this new identity. We have freedom. We belong to something bigger and better and stronger than we can ever be on ourselves. And as we step into this identity and this calling and this authority as the bride of Christ, we can't just think of ourselves as Central Vineyard or Central Vineyard Northampton um, or even the church in Northampton. This is the church. This identity spans thousands of years covering nations and denominations. And so when we see other parts of the church not behaving quite as we would like them to behave, we have to remember they are also God's beloved. They are part of this thing that we call the bride of Christ. And so we have to be really careful about how we speak about other parts of the Bride of Christ. You know, if, if a husband hears somebody saying something about their wife, they will be the first to say, that is not okay, that is my wife. And God is jealous and he fights for, for us, the church, but he fights for all of us. And so we need to love each other as the church. And sometimes that is turning um, somebody else's eyes towards God and saying, hey, that behavior is not okay. But most of the time, it's just loving, and it's just loving each other as the bride of Christ. So, we get to con- so as we consider this identity and this calling as the church, we have an opportunity to respond. Do we say yes to the dress? Um, do we say, I do? Are we going to commit and enter into covenant to pursue faithfulness? Will we accept that we are significant You know, there's times in our lives when individually we might feel really insignificant, really just not worth anything. Where is my life going? What am I called to do? This is biblical truth. We are significant. We are called out. We are chosen. We get to be partners with Christ. We get to live as a team. We get to be united. We are not in this on our own. Will we behave like we've got an inheritance and a richness as the bride of Christ, that we've got authority and access to him? 
Will we be all in? Will we pour our resources into this marriage, into this relationship? Or are we going to ask for separate bank accounts, keep our own name and a house just in case? Steve said a few times, if you want to know where your commitment is, where your loyalties lie, look at your bank account and look at your diary. Because the places where you commit your time and your money to, that's where your heart is. Is our heart in the church? Are we committed to the bride of Christ? Will we trust God with our finances, with our time, with our agendas? Will we trust that he's going to protect and support us if we give him everything? And, you know, this has been a good season to get into the Bible and to think, what is our identity and our, our calling? A while ago, we did a series called God as a Name, and we explored who God is. But right now, we're looking at who we are as a church and what God says about us. And what we see today is we know that God, we know that to God we are special, individually and collectively. He gives us a name and an identity, the church, ecclesia, the body, the family, the bride. And as we wait, we must never stop anticipating or longing for more. We must never settle for just being betrothed because we're called to be united with him.